Well, good morning, everybody. I uh, appreciate Tim's Sunday school class, uh, his sermon for the children. Uh, I'm beginning because I'm beginning a series on the letter of James, and James is about sanctification. James is concerned with the Christian's life now that they have put their faith in God. So I very much appreciate uh, that discussion and that uh, introduction to this important subject. Now, um, usually I start my sermons with, please turn in your Bible, to, but you've already done that. So, uh, so I want to paint a picture for you as we begin to think of this text. Imagine me, a seminary student, driving home for the winter in the middle of the Midwest during a blizzard. Probably ill-advisedly, I'm on this ice-encrusted road. There are cars on the side of the road that are turned over. Some of them are crashed together. Yet, I'm still driving. Eventually, my nerve breaks, and I decide I need to pull off. And when I pull off into a gas station, my car turns and slides and kept sliding until it hit the edge of a, uh, a, an embankment and broke the wheel. And I was scared and I was tired and I was angry because I didn't want to be stuck in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. I didn't want to pay who knows how much for car repairs. I didn't know how long I would be until I got back on the road. I didn't know where I was going to stay for the night. Why did this happen? Now, perhaps you're expecting me to conclude this story with some revelation of me finding out that a few miles down the road, there was a 20-car pileup, and if I had still been on the road, I would have been in it. But that's not what happened. As far as I know, nothing happened. Well, I shouldn't say nothing happened. Something did happen. God was working in me. God was sanctifying me. So again, I ask, why did this happen? We recognize that all God is sovereign in everything that happens. Nothing falls out of his will. And we have this promise in Scripture that all things work for the good of, of those who love him in Christ Jesus. And our tendency is to think that God's will in these matters, that the purpose for these events that happen to our life are all caught up in the here and now. Something, some good thing, something that's going to happen to this, like maybe escaping a 20-car wreck. But the truth is that our, while God is concerned with our current material and physical needs, his scope goes far beyond that. He is, more, he's, he is concerned with something greater and eternal, which is our sanctification, which is our being made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, being more and more able to live in obedience and to say no to ungodliness. So ultimately, why did this happen? Why did this trial come about in my life? It is because I was being grown as a Christian. I was being called to learn how to more and more trust God and to wait on Him, whatever happens in my life. My faith was being tested, and I was learning to be steadfast. You see, while our lives are valuable, while God has promised that He will provide for us physically, He is ultimately more concerned with bringing about in us those things which lead to eternal results. Be to those things which will last into eternity, being made more and more like him, like Christ, being able to love God more, to give him the worth that he deserves, to worship him. So why did this happen? 
because God is, was preparing me for eternity. You could call what happened a trial. James calls it a trial. Trials are challenges which test our quality. They show us who we really are, and they expose to us what we really value in our lives. Now, James in his letter is, James, uh, most, most people believe it is James, the brother of Jesus, is addressing Christians scattered abroad throughout the known world, Christians who are facing many trials of their own. Now, on top of the normal difficulties of life in the first century, these Christians were living in a world that wasn't very friendly to Christianity. There was persecutions of various kinds. There was the rejection of family and friends. There was a rejection of co-workers. There were economic consequences for being a Christian. There was even various local persecutions that could lead to death for the sake of Christ. And along with this, there was also the drawl of various other things in the world. Wealth, status, pleasures. And we have all these things in existence today in our lives as well. And it is a purpose of this epistle to remind the Christians of the implications of their faith in all aspects of their life. How you use your money, how you use your time, how you speak, how you treat and think about one another. All these things must, have, must be affected by the faith, our faith. And because of this, because James is such a uh, uh, practically focused book, it is oftentimes called the proverb of the, of the Christian life. And as James opens this epistle today, I, there are three things which he says about life that I would like to bring your attention to today. Three important truths which we get from his teaching and from the gospel. And the first is this. Life will have trials. James doesn't say if you have trials. He says when you meet trials. Life will have various trials And the purpose of these trials is eternal in their scope and value. Now, what could be considered a trial? Certainly many things fall under this category. Uh, Trials don't necessarily have to be bad things. It could be anything that puts your faith to the test. However, I think that James has in mind those sort of trials which are considered difficult. I mean, you and I don't really need that much of a call to find joy in certain things, right? Um, a new job, you don't need, necessarily need to find joy in that. You don't necessarily need to find joy in a financial windfall or ministerial success. But James is calling the Christians here to find joy, all, to count all trials as joy, even those that are difficult, even when you're wrecked in the middle of a blizzard on a Sunday when everything's closed in Missouri. That is to be counted as joy. And why is that? Why are they to be counted as joy? I mean, it wasn't fun being, I still don't consider it as being fun being out there in the middle of the snow in Missouri. He calls us to consider these things all joy because of what they will result in in the Christian life. And while there are certainly immediate results and ramifications, just as an aside, I did rejoice in the fact that my car broke down right next to the only hotel in the area. That was something that I saw God's hand working right away. But ultimately, James is drawing our attention to something far beyond this, something that is greater, that is eternal in scope. And what is it that he's calling them to? What is it that these things rejoice uh, result in? And I've already hinted at that. It is the creating in God's people 
those sort of characters which will continue to eternity. He, he says in his text, to count all trials as, uh, as all joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Such testing refines our faith. You can think of a fire which tests metal to purify it, to remove out the dross and leave pure and gleaming silver or gold. The testing of our faith proves its metal. It shows it for what it's worth, and it shows, it, and it shows what its true value is. Now, what is it that the testing of our faith in this way will produce? John Calvin taught that the trying of our faith, the various difficulties in life, will wean us away from this world will cause us to love this world less and to long more and more for heaven. So the goal of this various trial is that you would become eager for eternity, that you would love your Lord and Savior more than anything in this world, that you would set your heart and your sight so much on God that your lives would constantly be directed, that is, affected by your faith. And James calls this steadfastness, holding on, not giving up or turning aside from your devotion to Christ, to something that really matters to you. Such an outcome is not a short-term one, but long-term. As you can see in our text, James calls you and I to allow steadfastness to reach its ultimate goal, which is what? He puts it this way, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, even this endurance that the trials produce in us is not an end in itself, but is a quality by which the Christian is brought to a place of completion by their faith. What is translated here is perfect. Now, this word perfect refers to something being brought to a place of intended completion, like when a baker pulls a, perfectly cra- a beautifully crafted loaf of bread out of the oven and declares perfect. He's not saying that it is it is. Uh, without faults, but is being brought to a place in which it was the intended goal of the baker. Now, what is God's intended goal for the Christian? In Titus 2, 11 to 14, Paul says that it is to, be, to redeem us and to, make us and to purify us for himself, to make you and I holy and blameless before him. So the intended goal of the Christian is ultimate perfection, to have no faults, to be sinless, to stand before God with a heart that is single-mindedly devoted to him alone. And this is a work which is happening right now. You see, when James says to let steadfastness have its full, have its full work in you, he's saying, see it to the end. Let it go to completion. Let it produce its results. Be patient endure. And this work is happening in us right now. Do you see it? Do you see growth in your devotion and your walk with Christ? Do you see your love with the Lord growing now? You see, true spiritual life means growth. Being a Christian does not mean that you say a prayer once and then go about your life as if nothing happened. The Christian life is one which is fixated on the end goal of being made complete and lacking in nothing in Jesus Christ. So when James calls us to let steadfastness have its course with us, he's saying, let us see it to the end. Let us bring it to completion. Now imagine, if you were like me, there are probably aspects of your life that lack in this perspective. Or maybe you're tired and weary of enduring, and a long time of tr- enduring some trial. 
Well, there's good news. God offers you wisdom. He offers it to you abundantly and will not rebuke you for your lack of it. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously and without finding fault. God will give you abundantly out of his great store, and he will not chide you for your lack of wisdom. But what is wisdom, and what does this have to do with what we're talking about here? Wisdom is the ability to discern what is good and what is right. Wisdom is understanding what God is saying here and being able to apply it to your life and understand what it means for your life now. So if you and I lack wisdom in any part of our lives, God will give it abundantly to us. He will help us to see what the end goal of all the various challenges and trials of this life are. And he, can help, and he will help us. That He will give us strength to endure. But this lavish promise comes with a warning. And this warning emphasizes the second point of the Christian life that we are talking about today, and it is this. The Christian life is, a, is called to one single to one of, is a call to one of single-minded devotion to God. A call to single-minded devotion to God. We see this as a stark warning. He says that the one who doubts cannot assume that they will get anything from God. But why is this? My first question when I read this verse when I became a Christian was, well, didn't Thomas have doubts? But Jesus showed him grace. So why is the doubter given such a stark warning here? Well, the word here translated as doubting can be a description of somebody who is wavering. They are unable to make a decision. They're not, they're not sure they really want to go in a certain direction. James calls them double-minded. They're thinking, they're, they're, their minds are going in two different directions. And he uses the, a, a very strong imagery here. He says they are like a wave on a storm-tossed sea. Now, a wave doesn't travel under its own steam. A wave is tossed about by the gust of strong winds. So it doesn't, in the, in the middle of a storm-tossed sea, it doesn't head in one direction, but it will fly in many. It has its, its purpose. It doesn't know its purpose. It doesn't know where it's going. It's wavering. You could also liken it to a balloon floating in the air. What controls a balloon? Every gust of wind blows it in every direction. It doesn't have one purpose. It's not like an arrow which flies towards its target. It is aimless. It wanders. This is a person who is wavering in their commitment to Christ. They aren't sure if they really want to go in that direction. Or if Jesus is really worth having if it means giving up on something. Maybe they think, well, religion is well and good, but I'm not going to be a fanatic about it. They basically are trying to stand on two sides of the fence, seeking to live however they want now, yet with Jesus as backup when everything else fails. In his fourth chapter of this epistle, James describes this person more. He talks to them about their plight. He says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So the doubter is one who isn't sure if they're really wanting to serve Christ or themselves. It's their will instead of his will be done. Therefore, the call today is to make a decision. Who will you serve? Will you give your whole devotion to the world or to God? 
Will you seek after those things which you have to struggle to keep and will have to lose at the end? Or will you put your trust in him who gives generously and gives that gift which is eternal and unfading? Now James follows this with a practical lesson for his readers. It would seem that the congregations that he was writing to were made up of both wealthy and poor people alike. So he gives them very practical instructions to consider what is important to them as it relates to their life. You see in the text, he calls out to the rich man and the poor man. Let me read it again. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, they will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. And this is the third truth that I have for us today. It is the outcome of these trials, these various testings in the Christ, for the Christian is far greater and lasting than anything in the world. You see, James in his call here is showing that there's both dangers in being poor and being rich. Both bring with them a tendency to be overly focused on material things, what we wish we had instead of what we have. You see, you notice here he says to the poor man, do not... Uh, he tells him to boast in his exaltation, and in a sense, he's also telling him not to focus on the rich man's riches that you wish you had, but to look forward to what you will have in Christ, to that exaltation where you will be lifted up in Christ. And there's also a draw to status. Wealth brings with it status, doesn't it? Uh, in those days, and even in our days, wealthy are, high, are often lifted up in the esteem of people. Sometimes this can happen in the church, and James will address that. So James here calls the poor person not to be focused on those riches which they had, but to look forward again to Christ and their future exaltation, to when they will be given an inheritance that is great and unfading, something far greater than the world has to offer. And at the same time, he's calling the rich person to not have his heart set on his wealth or status, but instead to be mindful of the fact that these things are fading they will one day be taken away from him, and he will be on equal standing with the poor person. He reminds them that their wealth gives them no standing before God. And note how he describes the wealth of the rich man. It just doesn't last. It will fade away like grass in the scorching sun. Now, when I first got here, I got a brief lesson in the health and uh, ecology of grass but from Wes. He told me just how resilient the grass is here. It, you can uh, drive over it, and it will still keep growing. That's not how grass was in the Middle East, or is in the Middle East. Grass will grow during a short and brief wet time. And then when the sun rises, it will brown, it will wither away, and its flower will die. This is what will happen to everything in this world that we hold on to, that we, that we treasure that isn't Christ. It will be taken away from us. Now, have you ever thought of wealth as being a trial, as being something that you have to endure to, to test your faith? I can't say that I have. Um, I tend to think with Teviev from the Fiddler of the Roof who said, if wealth is a curse, then may God smite me, and may I never recover. But wealth is indeed a testing point, as much as being poor is, as much as being single or married is, 
as much as our ministerial success and failure. Both of these ask us the question, where is your ultimate devotion? Is it with success? Is it with your family? Is it with that dream of being married and having a children, having children? Or is it ultimately with God? And these things are just an aside thing, a blessing that he gives you to use for his glory. So what will you set your affection on? What will you chase after in this life? What is worth your single-minded devotion and focus? James directs us to the answer to this. He shows us what is worthy of our single-minded focus. If you look at verse 12, he said, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James here calls the one who endures blessed. And what is it that makes him blessed? Such a person, having gone through all the trials and testings of life, and having stayed the course, they have kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, and at the end they will receive the crown of life. Now, in the Greco-Roman context, this wasn't a golden crown, like we would see a king wear on its head, but was a, a laurel wreath, which in those days was a, a sign of victory, which was given to athletes. And it is an image which is used throughout the uh, New Testament. You see a lot of it in Revelation, where this laurel wreath was promised to those who ran the race with endurance without stopping. The laurel wreath, which is eternal life in Christ. Now, some may ask at this point, well, once saved, always saved, right? I was saved by grace. Why am I being called to work? Why am I being called to work now? This is not a call to earn salvation, which we see in James, but a call to treasure it. A call to look forward so much to your future life with Jesus that you want to make it happen now. You would hasten the day if you could. But since you can't, you want to live in light of it now. It affects every thought and action and inclination of your heart. Consider a couple who's getting married. You look forward to that day. You want to live as if that day, you want to live in light of that day. You prepare yourself for the coming day when you'll get married. That is the call of the Christian life, is to be focused on the coming of the Lord so much that it affects our lives now. That we want to live that life that we will live eternally even now, which is a life of holiness and single-minded devotion to God. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, asks a question. If you do not crave holiness now, what makes you think you will enjoy heaven? If we do not delight in the things of the Lord now, why will we think we'll delight in them in eternity? Eternity is going to be made up of praising God, having our hearts and affections singly focused on Him. And that is to be the work of the Christian now, is to live life in light of that single-minded focus. To, even in the midst of trials, to recognize that this is preparing us for eternity, where we will be with God forever, where our hearts will be devoted to Him. So He is seeking now to produce in us that fruit which will last for eternity. So the truth of salvation in Christ must motivate us to run this life now, living now the life we will have in eternity. So then, how will you live your life in light of this? How will this great truth motivate you? What will you do with your time, your money, your words, your thoughts? How will you live with your family and your neighbors? How will you live with fellow believers in light of what Jesus has done for you? 
Perhaps illness or loss has affected your life. Will you set your life, your sight on Jesus, whom you will never lose? Perhaps the love of this world has control over you. You love pleasure or money or success or esteem. And that is the driving force behind all that you do. Know that these things will soon enough fade away into nothing. Will you set your heart on Jesus' promises? Will you set your heart on the eternal life he offers in the gospel, that thing which will never fade? Christian, today, if you are listening, he calls you to live for him. That, live for him that single-minded life of devotion to the one who has loved you and has died for, to save you from your sins. And if any is listening here who does not know Christ, if you have not trusted him for eternal life, why not? What value is there in clinging to grass that will fade? What value is there in clinging to flowers that will fall away? He calls you today to trust in him, that you too may have this promise of eternal life in him. Amen. Let us pray. Father, again, I ask, what do we have in heaven besides you, Father? You are all that we have that is eternal. That life which we have, which will be lived with you in Christ, is all that we have in this world. We thank you, Father, that you have blessed us with so much. You have put many things in our lives to draw us to you, Father. So I pray, Lord, as we live this life with the various trials that you put before us, that we would rejoice in these things, that we would look beyond them to the joy set before us, that we would endure them with knowing that our lives are hidden with you in Christ. May we follow after our Lord, Father, with all of our hearts. May your spirit work greatly in us to do this, Father, so that you would be glorified and Christ would be exalted. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.